Rabbi Klar shared with me earlier, he said that one of his community members phoned him and asked him this question. I have been down so long. How do I get up from here? And he said, this was a question and a sentiment shared by many people who feel simply downtrodden, dejected, sometimes surrendering to despair. All they can see is darkness, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of confusion. And people are living with very deep anxiety. Some people experiencing profound trauma and a trauma from the past that's been triggered. This week hasn't been an easy week for anybody. Never mind the last few months and the last year and the last two years. And that's why there is a certain awakening. Let's face it, there are conversations today that are happening easily and smoothly that have not happened in decades. You know, my my wife tells me she's on a WhatsApp group here in Rockland County. So one of the women asked if anybody knows of a particular type of mental health professional for this and this type of problem. She says in the past, till you would get an answer from somebody, it would take time and the answer would be shrouded in, a, in mystery and code language. And here, right away, there was a conversation. This one is struggling with this mental challenge, and this one's child is struggling with this mental health challenge. A lot has emerged over the last year and a half in the mental health field. And a lot of that is positive. We are now given an opportunity to deal with things that we did not have to deal with, we could not deal with, over all these years and maybe generations, because things were relegated to the subconscious sellers of our psyche. But now, history and providence has caused so many truths to emerge to the fore, to be brought to the fore of our consciousness, in ourselves, in our spouses, in our loved ones, our children, our families, our grandchildren, our friends. And in that sense, this is a tremendous opportunity. It's an opportunity that comes with pain. It's an opportunity that comes with crisis. It's an opportunity that comes with heartache and with tears, but an opportunity nonetheless. I'm reminded of that unforgettable scene, maybe one of the most important scenes accountable for Jewish resilience over 4,000 years. It's in Genesis. Jacob, in the middle of the night, is struggling with a mysterious adversary. And they struggle all night. And this mysterious adversary tries to defeat Jacob. He can't. He maims him. He dislocates his sciatica. And at the end of this fateful, struggling night, this adversary turns to Jacob and says, let me go because dawn has broken. And Jacob says, lo ashalechacha ki imbeirachtoni. I will not let you go until you do not give me a bracha, until you do not bless me, until you do not bless me, I will not let you go. How strange. You're battling with somebody all night. They're trying to kill you. (laughs) And at the end of the night, 
You ask them for a blessing? What in the world is that about? Jacob was teaching the Jewish people. Every time you face adversity in life, it is insufficient for you to just emerge from the crisis and go back to the way you were before. No! I will not let you go until I do not emerge from this encounter more blessed, more authentic, more real, more deep, more powerful, and yes, more invigorated and stimulated and empowered. From this, the Jewish people learned over the last four millennia that when we face adversity, individually and collectively, it's insufficient for us to say, let's get rid of the adversary and go back to the way we were before. If that's the point, then why did God send this adversity in the first place? No! The message must be much deeper. Lo I will not let you out of my hands. Ki imbeirachtani. Only after I will emerge more blessed. Now that's a tall order. Because what this means is that within each challenge lay a potential for a new reality. Within each crisis lay the seeds for opportunity. Within each experience that confuses us and overwhelms us lay the secret potential for rebirth, for renewal, for a renaissance, for rejuvenation. And therefore, I don't just turn to a crisis and say, get out of my life. Yes, I want the crisis to live my life, but I must go one step deeper. And that is, I want you to get out of my life, but I will not let you go until I will discover how you have caused me to grow in unprecedented ways, how you have made me a new person, how you have molded me and crafted me and allowed me to discover parts of myself that I never knew existed. How you empowered me to go into places I was never ready to go, to get in touch with emotions that I thought would be repressed or suppressed till my last breath, to get in touch with my true dreams and yearnings and longings and pain the way I have never done before. And then it will turn out that you did not only constitute a crisis, but you also became an opportunity. There's an old saying, why are the Chinese around for 5,000 years? It's because the same character that they have for the word crisis, they have for the word opportunity. But with Judaism, it goes one step deeper. We have a word called mashber. It's a Hebrew word, mashber. Mem shin betresh. M-A-S-H-B-A-R. Mashber. It's a Hebrew term. It means a breakdown. From the word lishbar, broken. Shvira, brokenness. A breakdown. But you know what it also means in Hebrew? When a woman traditionally in the days of yore would sit on a birthing stool. It's called in biblical Hebrew, Isha Yoshevet al-Hamashber. A woman sitting on a birthing stool. Funny juxtaposition. Because in Judaism, every time something gets broken, it's really an opportunity for rebirth. Now I have to say, I don't mean to come across here as a preacher and a pontificator, because I'm not. 
This is painful. What I'm saying is painful. Somebody who just says, oh, there's a breakdown. Yeah, it's just a new birth. Oh, there's a crisis. It's just an opportunity. Oh, this angel, this adversary is trying to kill me. Oh, he's going to bless me. This means I spaced out. I'm not feeling the pain. We have to address this from a very vulnerable place. This is an awareness that comes with a lot of tears. And with a lot of grief. And with a lot of pain. And yet, it's the secret of our story. It's the secret of our fortitude. It's the secret of our resilience from the days of Jacob. Proof is that at that moment, Jacob received a new name, which became our name. His name used to be Yaakov, Jacob. And at that moment, after that encounter, his name was transformed from Yaakov to Yisrael, Israel. And that's our name till today. We are called Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel. Our homeland is called Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And our Torah, our religion is called Torah Yisrael, the Torah of Israel. And that adversary changed his name, said, don't call yourself Jacob anymore. Call yourself Yisrael. Because you have wrestled with God and with people and you have prevailed. It's when we wrestle with our own demons and our own skeletons, with our own darker angels and our own traumas, with our own fears and our own insecurities, with our own difficulties and our own challenges. When we wrestle with compassion but with conviction, with deep kindness and sensitivity but with unwavering faith and commitment and resilience, that we come out from the encounter more blessed. And I say to each and every single one of you, here with us this evening. This is a time when in the middle of a night, each of us in our own way has encountered an adversary or adversaries that threaten us, that overwhelm us. It sometimes feels like they want to kill us and destroy us or maim us, wound us. They sometimes dislocate our sciatic nerve not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, psychologically, in which I lose my my posture, my sense of erectness and pride and dignity. My full posture is compromised as a result of these forces of toxicity. But it's also an opportunity to emulate our forefather Jacob and say, I will not let go of you until you Do not bless me. I will not let you go until I do not emerge from you more blessed, more deep, more real, more authentic, more wise, more empowered, and more focused. But friends, how do we do this? How do I do this? Or to quote again Rabbi Clark's friend, I have been down for so long. How do I find my way up? How do we cultivate faith in times of anxiety? What do I do when I feel that darkness, despair has overwhelmed me? What do we do in those moments when we feel that so much of our life has been snatched away from us? When there is this tremendous pain coupled with fear, coupled with anxiety, coupled with insecurity, coupled with uncertainty, coupled with challenges that we did not expect, curveballs that come our way that we did not anticipate, 
whether it's in terms of your own emotional health, your own mental space, your physical, financial, spiritual, social standing, your physical health, whether it's facing loss and grief and tragedy, whether it's facing pain, physical or emotional, whether it's facing a challenge and a crisis with your own child or children, or in your own marriage, or in your job, or with your family, or friends, or community. Internal struggles or external struggles, struggles that people see, and many struggles that most people don't even see, because they happen in the inner recesses of your heart and my heart. And I want to give you this evening a brief but powerful blueprint that Judaism has articulated millennia ago, but it's always been fine-tuned and developed and crystallized through generations of sages and rabbis and rebbitsons and teachers and mentors until this very day. Let's begin with step one. So after we established the baseline, and the baseline is Judaism's approach to adversity is that message of Jacob, I do not let you go until I do not come out more blessed. Great message. But how? What are the tools? What are the skills to get there? So I'm going to go through Judaism's program, or at least a few points in Judaism's program, towards reaching this state of consciousness and implementing it in our lives, and then we're going to open the floor to questions. And I just want to say, all questions are welcome, no taboos, nothing off limits. You can either unmute yourself or ask your question live. You could put your question in chat so that I can read it. And we are open to every single type of question and, of course, as good Jews, objections as well. Step one. One of the most powerful teachings of Judaism that touches me every single day is the idea that despite any abuse you have experienced, any trauma you have endured in your life, and when I say trauma, I mean trauma with a capital T, you know, that traumatic experience or event that only you know of or some people besides you know of, but also trauma, not with a capital T. Those accumulative experiences in life that cause us to be timid, to remain locked up in our own bubble and cocoon, not to trust anybody, to feel isolated, lonely, misunderstood. Anybody knows what I'm talking about? (laughs) Those experiences accumulative in life may be of neglect or our own deep sensitivities, those experiences as a result of nature or nurture, as a result of epigenetics or environmental influences, education, parenting, our home, our family, or just our own chemical and genetic physiological makeup, which causes us ultimately to grow up in a world that is difficult for us. We're confused. We're overwhelmed. We may be suffering from a mental illness. We may be suffering from a real mental challenge. And you know, the only people I know who are perfect are the people I don't know. The only families I know that are perfect are the families I don't know well. The only marriages I know that are perfect are the marriages I don't know. Each and every one of us struggles in our own way, whether it's with ourselves or with people very close to our lives. And yet Judaism comes and says that you have to always remember that your core remains untarnished. Your core is invincible. Your core is indestructible. Why? 
because the core of your being, of your body and your soul, is a fragment of God, in the words of the Tanya and the holy writings of the mystics. And because you are a fragment of God, just as God is invincible and indestructible, at your core you're invincible. Your essence is filled with infinite potential, with infinite confidence, with infinite promise. Nobody and nothing can crush and stifle and obliterate your innermost beauty, your dreams, your passion, your passions, that inner child that remains pure, always remains pure. And even if that child endured unspeakable trauma or abuse, or abuse and trauma not of such grandeur, but nonetheless experiences and encounters that came from its own genetic makeup or from its relationship with others that cause us to shy away from life. I learn to space out, I learn to detach, or I become so aggressive or passive-aggressive, or I'm angry or I'm miserable or I'm always doubting myself. I could never be calm, relaxed, cool, collective, happy. Despite all of those truths, Judaism teaches in the words, I was saying it today in the prayers, and I... Was so, I was thinking about it, the very emotional words. We say it in the morning prayers. King David says, Do not touch my anointed ones, my Mashiachs. So the Talmud says in Tractate Shabbos 119, Who are the Mashiachs? Who are our anointed ones? These are the little kinderlach, the little children. Every one of us has a child inside that is defined as Mashiach, God's anointed one. It's the child in us that is filled with so much innocence and so much joy and so much trust. And yet, as we grow older with the disappointments of life and the disillusionments of life and the pain of life and the feedback we experience in life, you may think that that little cute angelic piece of heaven lingering inside of you has been tarnished, has been abused, has been affected. So we say every morning, Nothing in life can touch, can tarnish, can affect my inner little Mashiach, my inner peace of God. You must trust that part of you. You are deserving to be free because at your core, your soul is emancipated. You are not in shackles. You are not inhibited. Yes, I know my thoughts tell me I'm inhibited. My neural pathways have been formed towards a inclination of slavery and subjugation and depression and despair. I know that. But those are all thoughts. Those are all emotions, visceral experiences that I'm having. But they never, ever can deprive your essence from the freedom that is its inherent and innate quality as a fragment of heaven here on earth, as a spark of God, as a ray of infinity, as a piece of Hashem, your core remains forever, forever free. And that faith in your core must always be present, even if viscerally I am struggling with it. There's a fascinating interpretation of the Midrash, of the Midrash. Moses, before he dies, he calls God, Kale Amuna, the God of faith, at the end of Deuteronomy. 
the God of faith, asks the Sifri, ask the rabbis, what does it mean God is the God of faith, that he believes in himself? God has faith. I understand when you say this person has faith, they believe in God, they believe in a higher power, they believe in a consciousness of love and unity. What does it mean, Caleb Muna, God is a God of faith? Who does he have faith in? Himself? You mean he doesn't doubt that he exists? God is not an atheist? That's an interesting question, right? An interesting con. Can God be an atheist? <laughs> That's what the Medrash seems to imply. Caleb Muna, God is a God of faith. And the Sifri says, and I quote these beautiful words in Hebrew, Shehemin ba'olamai ubaro. What it means, what Moses means when he says God is a God of faith is, he has faith in me, in you, in the world. He believed in the world and he created it. And he never becomes disillusioned. Nor should you become disillusioned in yourself. The definition of creation was God's faith in you. God's faith in me. So that even if you're struggling with your faith in God, never ever doubt God's faith in you. Even when you don't believe in yourself, he still believes in you. We we say it every single morning. It's the first Jewish meditation and mantra right when we wake up, when we open our eyes. There's a beautiful meditation that Jews say. I thank you, eternal reality, for restoring my soul to me with great compassion. And then we finish off, Your faith is great. What does this mean? What we're saying each morning is, your faith in me is great. You have given me back my soul. I do not take it for granted. I don't take anything for granted. The fact that I was given another day of life and another opportunity to walk the face of this planet is a demonstration of you saying to me that I matter, that my day is significant, that I am not a prisoner destined to surrender to the shackles of the pain of life. No, that I could be happy, that I could have an incredible marriage, that I could have a great relationship with my children, that I could have a splendid relationship with my grandchildren, that I could have a good relationship with myself, with my parents, with my siblings, with my friends, that I can let go of at least some of my trauma, some of my anxiety. That's step number one. Step number one is acknowledging every morning that invincible core. Which brings me to step number two. We all need support systems. Everybody needs a friend. Everybody needs a confidant or confidants. You need somebody in your life with whom you can be completely open. It's too difficult for you to keep everything inside. Proverbs says, when there's anxiety in your heart, you have to be able to communicate it to others. The Talmud gives an interpretation. We have to be able to have one, two, three, four, five people in our lives, at least one, with whom you, with whom I can be completely open with. Somebody with whom you can share everything. You can think out loud. Now, of course, it has to be a person who's a confidant, a person who's confidential, a person who cares about you, a person 
who's wise and perceptive and understanding, somebody who understands you, somebody you trust. But we need such people in our lives. We are all vulnerable. We are all mortal humans. We are weak. We need to be able to connect. The first thing the Torah says is not good. What's not good? What's, what do you think is the first thing the Hebrew Bible says is not good in life? And the answer is, Lo tov adam levado. The first thing the Bible, Hebrew Bible says is not good. It's not good for Adam. It's not good for a human being to be alone. It's not good. We all need attachment. We all need connection. And today many of us are suffering from attachment disorder. We don't have healthy attachments. We are alone in the world. We need to be able to rediscover our ability to attach ourselves. Now, sometimes it's very scary. I want to become a victim so that I could say, I'm alone. Nobody understands me. Everybody backstabs me. Everybody betrays me. Every time I go to the synagogue, they're talking about me. Nobody respects me. Nobody honors me. I am the victim for eternity. I am the loser. I am the nerd. There's a song by the Shtibel Hoppers. It's called the Nebuch of the Shtibel. I'm the Nebuch. You know what Nebuch is? I'm the Nebuch. I'm the victim of the Shtibel. But we have to realize that those thoughts of victimhood are, its, are, are become a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's a part of me that is not a victim. There's a part of me that's free and I want to open myself up to it. I don't need to escape into victimhood in order to avoid the pain. I have the power to be able to confront it. And the first step is to be able to share, to be able to connect. The antithesis, today we know in research, that the antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. People who are connected don't run to addiction. People who are disconnected, they are alone in the world. They run to addiction. Which brings us to another very important point. And this is a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov teaches, this is a verse in the book of Exodus. The Jewish people have left Egypt. They have come to the Red Sea only to discover that the Egyptian troops are pursuing them. And they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And they don't know what to do next. And they cry out. And they're desperate. And some Jews say, let's jump into the sea. And some say, let's go back to Egypt. And some say, let's fight. And some say, let's pray. And then Moses tells them and he says, relax. Stand here and you will see salvation. Because as you see Egypt today, you will never see them again. The way you see Egypt today, you will never see them again. And the commentators struggle with this message. Because you see Egypt today, you will never see them again. What's the connection? Moses could just say, don't worry, you're never going to see them again. They're gone. They're gone. They're done. He says, no, since you see them today, you will never see them again. And the Baal Shem Tev gives us an extraordinary interpretation. He says, only because you're ready to look at Egypt today, you will never see them again. If you close your eyes now, you will see them again and again and again. But if you're ready to look at them now, you will never have to see them again. The Baal Shem Tev is teaching us never to be afraid of confronting any emotion inside of us. Don't be afraid of your trauma. Don't be afraid of your shame. Don't be ashamed of your shame. Don't be scared to tackle what is inside of you. You know why? Because you're bigger 
You're larger and you're stronger. Your soul is a piece of infinity. It can, it can contain any emotion that comes your way. You do not have to close your eyes to any emotion inside of you. What a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, 300 years ahead of his time. It's because you're ready to look at Egypt today that you will not have to look at them again. You will finally be able to spit it out from your system and you won't become defined and trapped by it. But if you're going to close your eyes because Egypt defines you so much that you don't have the courage to be able to look at it, then it's going to become repressed or suppressed in the subcellars of your psyche and it will emerge. It will come out through all types of unhealthy ways. It will leak out from your system through passive aggressiveness, through anger, through resentment, through frustration, through hate, through stress, through anxiety, through fear, or another host of difficult and challenging experiences and emotions. Don't be afraid, Judaism teaches, of any thoughts that you go inside of you, any emotions inside of you. You are bigger, you are stronger. Like you used to tell the kids, my tati is bigger than your tati. And I say, your soul is bigger than any emotion that comes your way. Don't be afraid of it. You define it so that it does not have to define you. Your infinite soul can contain it. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't be humiliated by it. I know we are embarrassed by it. That's why we repress it. But the Baal says, you don't have to. It will not kill you. Because the you cannot be killed. The you is a piece of God. Nobody can destroy God. Nobody can destroy you. Which brings us to the next step. And this is known in Kabbalistic and Hasidic writings as Midas Harachamim. The attribute of Jacob, we have to cultivate the attribute of compassion. What does compassion mean? Compassion on others, but also compassion on ourselves. When you're dealing with a difficult thought, a difficult emotion, a difficult experience, when your trauma is being triggered and you find yourself in an abnormal state, you literally cannot react from a sober, sensible, logical, happy place. You find your deep, deep anxiety being triggered, sometimes in inexplicable and dramatic ways. You can't always get rid of it. But don't judge it. Make space for it and have compassion for it. Just have compassion. Feel bad for it. And you know what? Acknowledge that this may have been your survival skills. Your survival skill. This attitude that I developed that causes me to run away, when your spouse says this statement to you, you just check out emotionally. You're not present there. You run away. You run away to China. This may have been your survival skill. At four years old, this was your way of dealing with your challenges. You had no other way. This is all you can do. Run away. Or get angry. Or check out. Or get depressed. Or become a victim. Or go into isolation. This was your survival skill. This is how you lived. If not, the pain would have been too overwhelming and too overbearing for you to survive. You had to develop these skills, which now as an adult are paralyzing you and not allowing you to have deep, meaningful, and fulfilling relationships. So instead of criticizing these emotions, and instead of criticizing these experiences, and just causing them to go deeper into hiding... Can you have compassion for them? 
Can you cultivate Rachamim? Vayishak Yaakov Lerachel Vayevk. Jacob meets Rachel and he weeps. So the Tanya chapter 46 says, 40, 45, chapter 45 says, this is a metaphor for life. Jacob represents in the Zohar and Kabbalah the attribute of compassion. Rachel represents the soul that goes into emotional exile. And Jacob teaches us, you just have to be able to have compassion. Compassion for what you went through. Compassion for the strange survival skills you developed. Don't judge it. But look at it and say, you know, thank you. You were here to protect me. But now I do not have to be defined by you any longer. I will take care of you, my survival skill. Don't worry. You don't have to freak out. I get you. I have compassion for you. I love you. I cherish you. Give it a little kiss. And cry with it. Just cry. Just sit with that pain. And then it doesn't have to define you anymore. Then you could say, but now I want to choose to react from a place of freedom, from a place of emancipation, from a, from a place where I do not feel inhibited. Sometimes some of us are so locked up we cannot do any of this. I am experiencing so much trauma and I know that I'm just closed up. I can't connect. I can't open up. I don't even have... I'm going to take questions at the end, okay? Another few minutes. Sometimes I'm experiencing so much pain. And I know, I know for sure there are things inside of me that are reacting and I do not have control over them. And you know what? They are hijacking my life. They have abducted my freedom. They have abducted my relationships. And it's so important to acknowledge that. Not to deny it. Not to run away from it. To have compassion for it. To realize that that may be happening. Because the more you have compassion for it, the more you can quarantine it and not let it define you. Rather, you define it. And usually, in most cases, we need help from a real professional who can help us identify the traumas and then help us release those traumas at least to some degree. It's very important. If you find yourself paralyzed, if you find yourself always getting angry at your spouse, at your children, at yourself, at your parents, at your siblings, at the world, if you find yourself always reacting from a place of such deep disturbing places. It's so likely that I really have no choice. I am so much a prisoner to my own experiences and I don't even know how to live in any other way. And information won't help. You know, sometimes people people have been to talk therapy for decades. They have gone to rabbis and mentors and teachers and they tell them you have to read more good books about being ethics. Learn more Musr. Learn more ethics. Learn more Hasidus. Learn more Kabbalah. Learn more Chumash. Learn more Gemara. Learn more. And it's beautiful advice. It's good to learn more. But you know what? It's not addressing the problem. I want to be a good person. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good husband. I am traumatized. Sometimes you meet couples. He means well, she means well. They just don't know how. The guy makes a resolution. I'm never going to lose my temper again. 
and then he loses it the next day. He is responding from a place where he really doesn't have choices. The poor guy is a victim. He is responding as a six-year-old. For him, this is survival, or for her, this is survival. And if we can help them identify that trauma and help them release it and help them see that they can make choices, we can save lives. And you have to take that responsibility for yourself. It's not going to be always about information. Be a good person. Be a nice person. CBT, sometimes brilliant. Cognitive behavioral therapy is wonderful. Other forms of therapy, but sometimes it's just much deeper than that. And that's why today there is so much conversation about trauma therapy. The body keeps the score. And we need to be able to find those professionals who can help us release the trauma. Whether, whether, whether it's, idiot, whether it's a somatic therapy or other treatments being administered by real trauma experts that help people get out of the prisons that they have been in for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You just want to make sure you have real people, real experts who are guiding you and mentoring you, and they are familiar with the cutting-edge developments in this area. There's all these different types of treatments, including various substances that are being used today with mental health professionals and doctors and therapists and so forth. I'm not the experts. I'm not telling anybody what to do and what not to do. But there's all these conversations about ketamine and obagain and uh, cannabis and ayahuasca, but you need real professionals. These are not things that are that are valueless, these are things that have real consequences, and one really needs a top mental health professional who is a trauma expert to guide them in a path that will be productive and meaningful, but don't sell your soul to anybody. You ultimately have to take responsibility for your life and be the captain of your ship and go to people who are here for you and who are helping you. And I'm going to make three more points and then open the floor to questions. We have to realize that some people's trauma is not coming because they had bad parents or because they were abused or because they grew up in a horrible, dysfunctional family or community. Yes, nobody grew up in a perfect situation, but some of us are simply sensitive. And what traumatizes us more than anything else is existence. Just existence, yeah. Waking up in the morning and facing a world of differentiation. You see, before we came into this world, the soul experienced oneness. The whole world is one. It's all pervaded by infinite divine love and oneness. But existence is about differentiation. The part becomes detached from the whole, and I don't experience the whole anymore. And you know, for some people... That doesn't mean anything. Some people don't even understand what I'm talking about. But for some people, this is trauma. The trauma of experiencing a world that is fragmented, that is broken, is very difficult for many souls. And if that's the trauma you're facing, you have to realize this, that my pain may be coming from just facing existence. Facing existence means, for some souls, facing trauma. And the ability to work that through and to be able to understand the sensitivity of living and the need to be able to bring in light into that space of darkness, that's the remedy. The understanding that life itself is broken. In fact, the word in Hebrew for evil, for bad, is ra. Ra doesn't mean bad. Ra means 
broken. Ru'us, ruach, koisel ru'ah means broken because the beginning of all toxicity, the beginning of all negativity is that I feel that I'm broken. I'm not part of the infinite oneness that pervades past, present, future and all of the universe and beyond and connects all of us into a singular entity reflecting the oneness of the divine. So we have to realize that some of us are, are really sensitive to that. And we have to acknowledge those setbacks that we have each person in their own way. Mental, spiritual, physical, financial, trans- transcendent setbacks. And don't blame yourself. Just realize those sensitivities that may exist in you and in your children, what they call today HSP, highly sensitive people. <laughs> and highly sensitive people react to the world in different ways. What for you or for me means nothing for them can occupy significant space and really throw them over the top. And just tell them, oh, get over it, just be like me, is, is, is cruel it's, and it's irrelevant. Another very, very important point, and that is, you know, sometimes when darkness takes over, it feels like it's absolute and it's never going to end. You know that feeling? You're in a difficult marriage. You're in a difficult relationship with your kids. You're in a difficult relationship with yourself. And things are so dark. And you just tell yourself, this is never going to end. The darkness feels so powerful. It feels so absolute. It feels so infinite. You don't feel any glimmer of hope. And you could read things and you can hear lectures and you could watch Rabbi YY's clips and you can come across wonderful websites and you can see wonderful people. But that inner darkness that has set into your heart is just so all-pervasive. You don't feel there's a way out. It's like these dark clouds are never going to pass. The sun will never shine again. And there's a beautiful teaching among the Chabad spiritual masters about this. You know why you feel darkness is infinite? It's because in this darkness lay infinite opportunity. And because every darkness that we experience contains infinite opportunity, the darkness feels infinite. It's not because the darkness is infinite, because in that darkness lay an infinite light. And if I only have the courage to stay with it and to remain intact and to remain anchored in my unequivocal and unwavering faith, that infinite light will emerge and bring me to infinite places. So next time you're feeling that absolute sense of overwhelming confusion, take a deep breath and meditate on this. The sense of infinity, the sense of absolute hopelessness is coming from the fact that there is an absolute infinite opportunity here that you have now come across. And in that very thick darkness lay that infinite opportunity. So don't be afraid. Don't be scared. And finally, people have always wondered why in Judaism the day begins with the night before. Wouldn't it make sense for the day to begin with sunrise or with dawn break? As the dawn breaks or the sun rises, a new day should begin, or at least as it is done by us in America, midnight. 
So the first half of the night belongs to the previous day. And 12 a.m., we begin a new day. So those who wake up 2, 3, 4 in the morning are already part of a new day. But in Judaism, it's very strange. The day begins at nightfall of the previous day. So when you come home exhausted, tired, fashlept, fahakt, it's been a long day, and the sun sets as it's setting right now on us, this is when the new day begins. Come on, this is not when the new day begins. This is when the old day ends. It's time to go schluffy, it's time to take a shower, it's time to eat supper and relax. You know, read a book, have a drink, sit on the couch, go go to sleep, whatever it is that you do in the evening. (laughs) Join a Zoom class. But it's the day is coming to an end. But in Judaism, that's not the case. The day always begins with night. Nightfall, this is the beginning of the day. As it says in Genesis, Day one is a composite of evening and morning. Night and day creates the day always first with the night. You know, sometimes you invite people for Shabbat or Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. They make the mistake. They think Yom Kippur starts in the morning. Shabbat starts in the morning. They don't realize Shabbat starts Friday evening is the beginning of Shabbos. Not Shabbos morning, not Saturday morning. Saturday night is already, oh, Shabbos is over. It begins Friday evening. What's the reason for this? So there's a practical reason and there's a spiritual reason. The practical reason is, you know, people come home from work and they're often at their worst behavior. I'm hungry, I'm grouchy, I have a cold, I have a headache, I had a long day in the office. So when I greet my spouse and my children, sometimes my lowest angels are emerging. So the Judaism says, no, 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 when you come home at night, this is the beginning of the day. This is when you have to be the most fresh and the most invigorated and the most inspired and the most stimulated. This is your morning when you come home from work, five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, eight o'clock. This is the beginning of the day. Operate on your highest level of consciousness, your best level of behavior. This is the beginning, it's not the end. When you come home and you loosen your tongue, you plop down on the couch. This is not the end, this is the beginning. When you meet your spouse and your children, it's the beginning of your day. When you go into the office in the morning, that's already close to the end of the day. There's also a very deep spiritual idea. You see, in most cultures, the day begins when? either midnight or sunrise. In Judaism, the day always begins with night. And when does it end? It ends with day. And then sunset, nightfall, begins a new day. What Judaism is teaching us is that when we face the world and we face time, we always begin with darkness. We always begin with night. But that's the beginning of the day. It's not the end of the day. The end of the day is sunlight. Because the purpose of life was not just to find light. The purpose of our world and our life, the meaning of existence is that we live a life that is essentially a manufacturing company to transform darkness into light. That is what life is about. The meaning of life from the Jewish perspective is we are the manufacturers. Manufacturers don't take a ready-made product and keep it a ready-made product. That's not what you need a manufacturer for. On your manufacturer, you need to take raw material and to change it into a new product. God did not put us into a universe that is filled with light. We are manufacturers. We take material and we transform it into another material. 
we were placed into a world of night, of darkness, of confusion, of vulnerability, of uncertainty. And that's how life begins. Each and every one of us faces some form of darkness because you are a manufacturer. You're not a victim. You are a co-partner in the work of creation. And what is your job? Your job is to manufacture darkness and transform it into light. Our day begins with darkness. And then it becomes transformed into light. And then a new day begins with a new darkness that we transform into light. So when you're facing, my friends, darkness, when you're facing a trauma, when you're facing a difficult emotion, a difficult experience of the past or of the present, whatever you're facing, don't surrender to despair. Don't give up. Realizing, Realize this is what it's about. It's about taking this experience, this toxicity, and looking deeper, digging deeper, and transforming it into a source of light and enlightenment and inspiration. It's only from the transformation of darkness into light, Yom Echot, that we discover the true oneness of life, the true oneness of existence, a oneness that pervades both darkness and light, infinity and finiteness, heaven and earth, body and soul, until the great moment when all the darkness will be revealed, will reveal what it's really containing inside of it, which is the infinite light. Thank you very much. We have a lot of comments and questions, so let me begin. If you want to unmute yourself and ask your question live, that's fine. Right, Rabbi Klar? But in the begin, in the meantime, I have a lot of questions here on the chat. So I'm going to begin. Question number one. All that you said sounds very good, but there seems to be an implied if. If you do X, you'll get Y. It seems a little too transactional. And I really... I'm confused by that because it's all transactional and everything has this if. Fill in the blank what this X is, but only when you fill in the blank will you get Y. Well, I think... <laughs> what what you're saying is put on fill-in, daven, Shabbos candles, right? I mean, and that's fine, but, you know, say it, say that. Putting on tefillin is a wonderful idea. <laughs> Lighting Shabbos candles is a wonderful idea. And celebrating Shabbos is certainly a wonderful and divine idea. But the way I see all of But if you still do those things, you're still feeling the dread and, you know. But actually, it was... Like a magic bullet. Did you hear my lecture? Because I didn't mention any of these three things. Right, but it's implied, right? <laughs> Well, I think it depends how we see these mitzvahs. I see these mitzvahs as opportunities to go deeper into ourselves and really cultivate a much more profound self-awareness and alignment with our divine core. But there's no way that these mitzvahs exempt somebody from doing the emotional work that requires self-awareness. In fact, that is what tefillin is. 
Tefillin is the work of really dedicating my mind and my heart and aligning them with the ultimate reality. That's what prayer is about. That's what Shabbos is about. So I think these mitzvahs are actually divine tools to be able to go and challenge ourselves. But I don't think it makes sense to say that a person who doesn't do any self-work, is not interested in any self-awareness, and just the mitzvah itself will cover for all the issues and will eliminate all the problems. Sometimes mitzvahs accomplish incredible things, but as the sages say, a mitzvah without intent and without spiritual work is like a body without a soul. So the mitzvah itself has infinite value, but for the mitzvah to really accomplish its full goal, it must come with an internal openness and readiness. Next question. I still cannot get the concept of Mashiach, number one. Number two, they say God helps those who help themselves. We can't rely on external factors. So, why do we talk about this Mashiach who's going to come and save us? Great question. But really the concept of Mashiach is really not looking to some person who's going to come to save you. I spoke before about Al-Tigur B'Mashiachoy. The real idea of Mashiach is that each of us emerges in our full splendor to save ourselves. There's a famous expression in Kabbalistic writings that every Jew has a spark of Mashiach. And when every person brings out their own spark of Mashiach, all the sparks create the collective Mashiach that liberates the world. So Mashiach is not about some foreign human being or angel who invades our space and says, I'll take care of all your problems. Mashiach, first and foremost, is a state of consciousness in which you and I discover our own infinite divine potential to be able to see the world as a place of infinite love and oneness. And when each of us brings out that inner consciousness to the fore, so then the collective Mashiach emerges to be able to transform all of humanity. How does one differentiate... How does one differentiate between the truly very sensitive people and the ones who pretend to be very sensitive, when in fact they're just using their sensitivity to control the situation, to to manipulate people around them? And there are people like that. So how do you know if they're really sensitive or they're just using sensitivity as a tool to manipulate? Very interesting question that is. So the truth is that I have not met such people, so I don't know, I don't know how to answer that. In other words, I don't think this is something that's easy to fake. Because people who are really sensitive are not choosing to be sensitive. It's not easy. <laughs> There's a famous expression in Proverbs, Yosef Das, Yosef Machov. King Solomon says, the more perception, the more pain. It's not something you choose. I don't choose to be more perceptive, to pick up energy that other people don't pick up. Other people go to a wedding or a bar mitzvah and they come home unscathed. And I go to the same events and I pick up 
the energy of so many people. It's not something you voluntarily choose. Either you have it or you don't have it. So I think, I don't think it's something I can feign or fake. People who are just sensitive, they, there's a lot going on inside of them. They're constantly processing things that other people don't have to process. There's a stimuli that they're detecting and are absorbing, and it's creating and wreaking havoc in our brains. And, and they can't sit still. They would like to. They're not trying to make other people's lives miserable or their own lives miserable. It's just something that they are really experiencing, and we have to respect it. We have to create space for it. We have to, those of you who don't understand this, we have to understand this. You may not be dealing with this wonderful, great, you know, <laughs> enjoy life, enjoy life. But this is not something that people fake. I don't see it. I don't see it. Light at the end of the tunnel. What's Judaism's perspective about that? It's like somebody once told me, Rabbi, why were they said, you know, they tell me there's light at the end of the tunnel. The problem is that I don't got a tunnel. So what I would really say about this is, of course, there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I think what's more important is to realize that the tunnel itself is eclipsing a very deep light. I think it's important to remember that. What would the Rebbe say about the situation in Surfside, Florida, the collapsing of the tower and the horrible tragedy? It's a very important question, but (laughs) I'm not the Rebbe, so I cannot tell you what the Rebbe would say. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers are with everybody affected by it. Of course, with those who have lost loved ones and they have been confirmed, and our thoughts are with all of them. And of course, our thoughts and prayers are with all the families who are eagerly waiting and anticipating a miracle. And they're still searching and searching, and we pray and we hope, you know, that there will be survivors and that miracle will unfold in front of our eyes. It's a very difficult and surreal and and, and devastating moments, and we just have to be here with each other and for each other, holding hands together in unity and in faith and in prayer and in deep camaraderie. I am going to be giving tomorrow morning a lecture at 9.45 a.m. about a fascinating four-hour talk that the Rebbe gave in 1932 about never giving up on souls buried in the rubble. He dissected a Talmudic law in Tractate Yuma, page 83, and I'm going to be addressing that tomorrow, 9.45 a.m. You could tune in. It's going to be on theyeshiva.net on my website, the, T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot net, the yeshiva dot net, 945. You can tune in to a fascinating talk of the Rebbe, 1932. Never give up on any soul that may be found in the rubble. Um, please help us out by filling out this anonymous survey. There's a survey here, so fill it out. You could see it in the chat. Next question. Can I ask a question? Sure, please. Hi, my name is Miriam Kornitzer. I live in Clifton, New Jersey. I'm actually a therapist. I've been a therapist. Welcome, Miriam from Clifton. Thank you. Thank you. So I am a therapist and I specialize in anxiety and eating disorders and addiction. I kind of see, I see teens, I see adults, kind of see see everything. And um, I, so I'm I'm talking to 35 anxious people a week and I do try to incorporate some faith-based work to like help my clients to cope. 
Um, I used to be Lubavitch. I'm not Lubavitch anymore, like religious anymore, but I still am a faith-based person. I do believe that God loves me. But so what I teach my clients is that suffering is inevitable. And the people who find themselves so much anxiety is because they want things to be wrapped up in like a pretty little bow and they want answers and they want to know it. And they're so afraid. They're so afraid of living. So by me telling them like suffering is inevitable, God didn't bring us into the world to just have this easy, carefree life. We were suffering was part of it. So have some expectations about that in life. Is that a kosher thing to say? I mean, you know, I, I always would say to rabbis, like punishment is in the Torah. Like sometimes we can be punished and they would say, no, it's not true. But I don't know. Like, is that is that part of it? That suffering is just inevitable and that we are just going to be anxious throughout our lifespan? <laughs> It's a great question. It's a great question. As a therapist, you're saying, for those who didn't understand, um, that you teach your patients that suffering is inevitable and this anxiety is part of living and don't be afraid of living. So I think the fundamental idea you're trying to convey is, is noble and important, but maybe the phraseology could be a little more fine-tuned. Or to quote, paraphrase Dr. Edith Ager, you know, Dr. Edith Ager is an Auschwitz survivor. She's a 96-year-old practicing professor, practicing therapist in La Jolla, California. She published her first book at the age of 91 called The Choice, and then her second book, The Gift. And she lectures around the country, I mean, at least till Corona. And she has a line, she was in Auschwitz. She lost her parents. It's an incredible book. It's, it's worthwhile to read. The Choice, The Choice by Edith Ager. And she says there, uh, she says, pain is inevitable. Suffering and victimhood is a choice I have to make. I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember if those are the exact words. And I think the main point she's saying is, every one of us confronts things that are painful. But it's my reaction to it that really defines my quality of life. Anchored in faith doesn't mean that I'm not experiencing pain, but it means that I am not a victim. As Joseph said, I was not sold, I was sent. God sent me into this situation in order to learn more about myself and in order to bring light into this space of darkness. So I don't have to fear whatever I'm confronting. So I think that sentiment is extremely noble. When the Torah speaks about punishments, the punishments should never be understood as punishments coming from vengeance or God, you know, losing himself, so to speak, or bad impulses, or I'm going to show you who's boss, you know, and I'll teach you not to start up with me. There are punishments that are there to help the person reach their ultimate potential and fulfill their mission in this world and in the next world, even if sometimes we don't understand how and why. So there's always a love behind it and a meaning behind it and a purpose behind it, which doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's rosy. It doesn't mean that I'm living in la-la land. But it means that I can anchor myself in a source of faith and connection and alignment with infinity that allows me to look at my anxiety and instead of surrendering to it in despair, I ask myself, 
what is this anxiety trying to teach me? How am I going to grow from this? How am I going to emerge from this more blessed? I think this is a quintessential Jewish idea. And thank you for everything you do for all of your patients every week. Thank you. Rabbi, I have a question. Yes, go uh, ahead. My name is Yana Neslos, and uh, I'm part of the Rabbi Clark's community people. Okay, you're lucky. Yes. You have one of the best rabbis in the world. One of the best and, rabbis in the world. And I'm also belonging to Rabbi Vogel in Rochester, New York. Wonderful. Um, the word, thank you, the word ra is bad. Friendship. Beautiful question. Ah, geschmack question. Wonderful. So everybody understood the question? The question was, the word ra means bad. Right? But the word ra is the same it's the same letters as the word reya, which means a friend. Reya means a friend. In fact, the Maharal of Prague has a book, Nestivot Olami, has a section there called The Path to Avas Reya, to love a friend. We say in the Sheva Brachas, when a couple gets married, we say, you remember? Ava v'achva shalom v'reut. Love and brotherhood and peace and friendship. Beautiful question. And the answer is, listen very carefully now. You remember what I said earlier in the lecture, that the real meaning of Ra is not bad. The real meaning of Ra is brokenness. In Tractate Babakama, we have an expression, Kaisal ra'ua a flimsy, shaky wall that's wobbling, that's not steady, that's not firm. The word Ra comes from Ecclesiastes, Kohelas, Hakol Hevel Uru'us Ruach, broken spirit. Because the genesis of all negativity and evil is the fact that I feel alone, I feel broken, I don't feel part of the whole. I don't experience myself as part of infinity. That brokenness is the beginning of loneliness and trauma that causes the toxicity that allows me to engage in whatever behavior I engage in. Now here is the point. The brokenness is part of life. What do I do with it? I can go two ways. Either I could find a friend, Rea, or I can go to a place of Ra, which is addiction. You remember what I said, addiction? The antithesis of addiction is not sobriety. The antithesis of addiction is connection. So there's brokenness in this world. That's Ra. What do I do with the brokenness? Either it cultivates, it inspires me, it stimulates me to find friendship. It's not good for a person to be alone. I want to be attached. And that's how I help the brokenness in the world. Tikkun olam, I repair the brokenness by creating relationships, which allows me to become back connected to the source of oneness. And that's the idea behind marriage. And that's the idea behind family. And that's the idea behind friendship. Or from the same brokenness comes... Loneliness, pain, victimhood, trauma, toxicity, addiction. It's a response to the same condition of brokenness. The question is only what I do with it. Uh, excuse me, Rabbi. Yes. Uh, my name is Eliza. I, I find Eliza. this lecture, hi, I find it extremely um, 
amazing and I'm learning a lot and I do agree with everything, but I do have one question for you. Sure. Um, I'm a hypnotist and a life coach and I have been doing a lot of research on uh, personality disorders, uh, narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. And I was just wondering when you said that somebody who's been traumatized doesn't actually have a choice, I would beg to differ that through all my research and the different readings that I've done, I would just disagree with you and say that actually I believe that often. And I think always the person actually does have a choice um, because if we take the stance and the stand that that person is a victim and doesn't have a choice, then we give that person our power instead of empowering ourselves. If somebody has traumatized us because they play the victim role and they have been a predator to us then we actually lose our empowerment and we give over all that power to the person who plays the role in the, in the disguise and the guise of being the victim. And I think that that's what happens in the courts. I think that's what happens in relationships. I think it's a lot about control and power. So I was just curious about where you got that information from, because I also used to believe, and I, I'm not saying that I know your beliefs, but I used to think because I have so much compassion, I'm an, I'm an empath that, and working with different people that the people who have been traumatized, well, they need help, they can't help it. But I actually believe, and I think it's important to take the stand that um, people who play the victim role actually can make a conscious choice and they are making conscious choices even to actually do harm. And I don't think that they should be let off the hook, so to speak. I think that we have to actually address this. And especially in the case of traumatization, uh, abuse, etc. So I was just wondering what your response to that would be. Okay, sure. Thank you, Aliza. So for those who didn't get it clearly, Aliza was saying she's a hypnotist. She works with a lot of different types of people, including people who have suffered from trauma, including mental illnesses like borderline personality cases, etc., etc. And she is taking strong objection with what I intimated or said that people with trauma have no choice. Okay, so thank you for the opportunity to clarify. I don't think we're contradicting each other. What I meant was that there's a trauma that it may exist in me or in you or in another person that I did not cause. I have no choice in the sense that I have to confront this trauma. The moment I discover, though, that it's a trauma, then I give myself the opportunity to make choices. In other words, if I deny that there is a trauma there, then I really am a victim to it because I have no choice because this is just coming up and I don't even know that I could react differently. I think this is who I am. This is the color of my eyes. This is the color of my hair. Like people say, what do you want me to be? Not me. And it's interesting that a lot of people, until they learn that it's a trauma, they are actually complete victims of it. It's paradoxically, you get what I'm saying? When I could learn that it's a trauma. In other words, it's not me. It's not my essence. Right. Something happened. Huh? Right. 
if the person has healthy self-esteem to actually right. that and won't get help. Right, I could say, you know what, you know what? I'm being aggressive, I'm being angry now, you know? I have another choice, there's a choice. I was, I was not born to be this angry, vindictive, oppressive, cruel person. I was not created to be a narcissistic person who can't create space for anybody else. No, it's a survival skill based on traumas. So now I can actually make a choice and say, I don't want to live by this trauma anymore. I may still have to deal with it, right? You get it? You get it? That's what I meant. Yes, but, thank you so much for clarifying. Okay. Sure. Sure, thank you for the question. Thank you. And this is so important for people, you know, so important for people, right? For example, there's a person who has a difficult, difficult marriage. And part of his trauma is self-righteousness. Aliza, you deal with these people all the time, right? In their mind, they're doing God's work. They're torturing their wife or their husband or somebody else. But in their mind, they're telling themselves... I'm doing God's work. Now that itself is literally their trauma playing out in the most powerful way. They are such pathetic victims of their own patheticness that they don't even realize how they're destroying themselves and everybody else in the process. And I say to them and to me and to all of us, if you could really get the help you need and see that your reactions are abnormal. Your reactions are destructive. They're destroying you. They're destroying your spouse. They're destroying your children. It's really your trauma. And when you can discover that, you will be able to make choices. You won't have to be an eternal victim to that horrible trauma that is paralyzing you. They need to own it. Own it. it. Exactly. Exactly. You can own it. It's difficult. It's painful because you are triggered and the trauma is there and you may not be able to eliminate it until many new neural pathways are developed in your brain. And that may take time, but you could still own it. You could still say, you know what? I'm bigger than this. I'm more powerful than this. I'm more blessed than this. I don't have to, I don't have to be locked up. I don't have to behave like a criminal. I don't have to be so vindictive. I don't have to let the anger rule my life and my relationships. I can give the anger compassion and space, but don't let it take over your life or my life. If the person is mentally stable and aware, yes. Of course, if the person is mentally stable and aware, of course, that's a prerequisite. They have to be in a state where they could, where they can hear this. Thank you for all your work. Any other questions? Yes, Rabbi. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Esther Lamb. Thank you. I've been following you for a long time. I love your lectures. Um, I wanted to, first of all, make one comment and then I ask you a question. So the comment is, maybe it's funny, but it's from Batman. It's about pain and something I remembered. I don't know if you ever watched Batman, but there's a part in Batman where like the servant guy that, um, you know, is is talking to Bruce, Batman, and he says, why do we fall? And I always think about this, the tzaddikim, they fall seven times, they rise. And he says, you know, only to rise again. And that like from pain expands consciousness. And, um, you know, I've been going through a tough ordeal with my family for the last six weeks. My father's been ill and we've had so many challenges. But then for every challenge, Hashem sends us like this 
great Yeshua. And I feel like we're like going through these levels, levels. It's like, how are we going to react? And it really has solved a lot of like crazy things in our family. Unfortunately, that it's been through this method. But um, so I had this moment, like deep moment of realization. And it was like parallel to what happened in Surfside. And maybe you could answer this question. You know, it seems to me that we wake up from our slumber when we go through these challenges, you know, then we find time, then we find compassion, then we find awareness, then we stop judging, then we come together. So what what can we do to not have to, you know, to merit to have this level of consciousness without having, you know, to fall so many times? What do we do on a day-to-day basis? Or oh, Rabbi Solomon just walked in as I'm talking about this. Um, so what what do we do? you know, not to have to go through these moments and to be able to, you know, be on this level without... um... Excellent. Excellent question. Excellent question. Thank you. Thank you for your uh, quote from Batman and thank you for your question. Uh, (laughs) So it's really... I would say you saying, why do we have to wait for a crisis like a surfside catastrophe to be able to bring us together, make us more refined? Um, a tragedy in Miron, like Baomer, a tragedy in Carlin, a coronavirus. And I think, you know, we are creatures of habit. We easily resort back to our comfort zones and we forget. We forget. That's why a major part of Judaism is that ability to create sustained, to to make sure that our epiphanies at moments of great revelation are sustained daily through small acts, thoughts, and words. For example, there's a daily blessing we make every morning when we wake up. Thank you, God for spreading the earth over the water so that we have solid ground to work, walk on. Now, what's that supposed to mean? What it's supposed to mean is, can you stop every moment for a few, every day, every morning for a few minutes? Can I stop and take a breath and realize how many millions and billions and trillions and zillions and sectillions of things have to go right? for me to be able to walk on the face of the earth and live? How many trillions of cells, 80 trillion or 70 trillion cells have to function in my body to be able to create every day the miracle of life? And when I get into a plane, the fact that the plane goes up. When I walk into a building, the fact that the foundations are functional. The earth is on top of the water. The water is not on top of the earth. These are daily meditations to be able to put us into a mindset where we don't take life for granted, where we realize that every breath is a miracle, and that if one detail was not fine-tuned perfectly to be able to support the systems that allow for life on our planet, nobody could have existed for more than a split second. You know, we just take it for granted, and then when something goes wrong, it's like, Nothing is supposed to work. The entropy principle teaches us that everything is supposed to create chaos. But it doesn't. We are alive. 
But this requires ongoing sustained meditation. So what I would say to myself and to all of us is, when you have such a moment, don't let it become a fleeting experience that passes. Create rituals in your life that allow you every single day to become anchored in a place of deeper awareness. That's what prayer is about. That's what meditation is about. That's what study of Torah is about. That's what mitzvahs are about. But we have to do it with attentiveness, with mindfulness. Take a few minutes every day and anchor yourself. Go into that place of soulful awareness. And I want to tell myself every morning, my reactions today are going to be reactions that come from a place of deep mindfulness, of deep spiritual awareness. So that we don't need a crisis, heaven forbid, to make us the people that we want to be. Rabbi. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you very much. That was very beautiful. Rabbi Solomon says hello. Rabbi Mendy Solomon? Yes. Hello, this is Yana again from Rabbi Clara and Rabbi Lee's community. How did is how did the the people of Israel sin, and why do they have to pay the price of having Ishmael's people in the Israeli government? <laughs> to talk about the Israeli government, no Ishmael's whole... no Ishmael's Netzigim uh, in the Israeli government. How could that? How could, this, how could this happen after all those years? I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, this is pain and suffering. I hear you. I, I don't know what to tell you. But I do know that Israel has survived on miracles. <laughs> so the miracles will keep on coming. Ben-Gurion once said, they say in the name of Ben-Gurion, who, was cons- who considered himself an atheist, by the way, he once said, "To live in the, if they live in the Middle East and you don't rely on miracles, you're not a realist. <laughs> you know? It's a lamb, a lamb encircled by 70 wolves. Israel is a lamb encircled by 70 wolves. How does a lamb encircled by a pack of 70 wolves survive? But that's how it's been for four, th- three and a half thousand years. We just have to Rabbi. be open to that miracle. Yes. Rabbi, thank you so much. I really have enjoyed this. I was in education for 40 years and wow. a counselor and therapist. And uh, in, 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 thank you. In some of my studies, um, <clears throat> I came across the unpublished works of Abraham Maslow that his wife had published in a, a journal for humanistic psychology. He yes. never finished it, but he he came up with such a, it's exactly what you're talking about. He said, it was, if you could just use this particular tool in situations that might be precarious for one reason or another, where you feel that you are emotionally losing it, um, to get back into the moment, because that's basically, you know, what we're talking about. But what he said was that when you're in this situation, imagine that this is the last time that you will be speaking to this person. Now, maybe it's the last time because it's going to be the last time you see them. 
the last, you're, you're not going to continue to live or they're not, God forbid, going to continue to live. But the point of the matter is, after having read this, it changed my life because all those days that a student would appear at my door when I was a counselor for almost three decades, just doing that. I also was a teacher, but transformed into, you know, I had more interests in being more of a counselor. But when they would appear at the door, I would say, you know, like maybe you have 50 reports, somebody's waiting on the phone, and can I speak to you? Well, that might be the child that's contemplating suicide. So I thought, what do I, what do I want to do if this is the last time I'm going to speak to this child? So it became my modus operandi. And then I took it into my personal life. And my mother, God rest her soul, you know, it was one of those days I was picking her up. She lived in a senior place. I had to get home. I had to make dinner for my husband. I had to to, you know, it was just five o'clock and, and she, I told her to be downstairs. I told her to, you know, we're going shopping. I, I have to, ha- I only have an hour. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, make believe this is the last, like make believe that this is the last time you're seeing your mother. Your mother. Wow. And I looked at the window. She lived on the second or third floor. I looked at that window and I literally went into a state of meditation where I said, that's where my mother used to live. And I got to a point where I realized that that was going to be reality, whether it's going to be my passing or her passing, but there will come an end to this relationship. And by the time she got downstairs and took her card in and knocking on my window, because at that point I was in such a deep state of gratitude of the fact that my mother was alive and I had another opportunity. And she said, Marianne, are you okay? And I said, instead of what would have happened 15 minutes before, like, why were you late? I told you but little, that deep, dark part of myself. I forgot myself and I wow. completely became aware of the moment. And I looked at her and my words were, mom, you are so beautiful. She says, why are you crying? I said, she just, Looks so beautiful. I said, I'm so happy to see you. And then she went into, oh, I'm so sorry. The elevator. I said, who cares about an elevator? All I care is it. Now, my mother is gone. My mother is gone 15 years already. God rest her soul. But I look back and I was transformed. And I will never be the same because of what I read. And as a convert to Judaism, I have found, as uh, when I was studying, I I studied with Rabbi Clara, studied with Rabbi Leaf. We came across something that was, um, it was Aristotle's, uh, Aristotle wrote a letter. And the letter was that he would have burned all of his books had he found the Torah first. Because it is in the Torah that all truth is. And everything, the world is just upside down. Everything that looks bad is good. It is Hashem working in mysterious ways. Wow. How many years ago did you convert to Judaism? Uh, just two, but I wow. I have I have an interesting story sometime. Like you grew up you grew up in a Catholic home? In, in, yes. In a Christian home? 
But I, I was a philosophy and religion major and I was teaching Judaism when I, I mean, I'm in my, my sixties and I was teaching Judaism in my twenties in, in union high school because in the sociology department and fell in love. And I fell in love with a three month old baby. When I was first married, we lived in a, an Orthodox community in Elizabeth and we were uh, the only Gentile. Rabbi Tights, yeah? Yeah, Rabbi Tights. And Rabbi Tights was my neighbor. And Rabbi Pinchas Tights. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to... The story so long wow. that it's it's not for tonight, but... Okay, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing. You, you are a source, Marianne. You are a source of inspiration and enlightenment to all of well, us. Well, right back so at you, you Rabbi. Now, you, you, you mentioned Abraham Maslow and his insight, which changed your life. It's worthwhile to note that Maslow, Abraham Maslow, passed away while he was jogging. He suffered a severe heart attack while he was jogging unexpectedly, and he died in June 1970 at the age of 62. In California, this was. So his his observation when he said, you never know if this conversation with this student or with this friend or with this parent or with this person might be the last one. You know, sadly, he just, he was just taken suddenly. So it's so important to be able to have that mindful, mindfulness and not allow. That's beautiful. I just want to say thank you for everything that you have given. You are, you've been such an inspiration to me. I've been listening to you for years and years and you are a big part of my conversion. And I, I, and as, as Rabbi Clark, Rabbi Leaf, and, uh, I just can't thank you enough. God bless you, your family, Baruch Hashem for you. May you live a long, healthy life and dance at your great grandchildren's weddings. Amen. Amen. That means so much. Same to you. And thank you for being such a source of light and serenity and faith. Baruch Hashem. Thank you. Okay, Rabbi Klar, you want to uh, say goodbye to all of the wonderful kindred spirits that are gracing us here this evening? I, I felt when we all decided to invite you to speak that this was crucial. I don't think there's anything more important, and you did such an amazing job. Everybody has to hear this. So I, I'm going to push this uh, this recording of this class for the next long while, Thank make you. sure all my kids see it and all my friends and anybody I care about. It was really wonderful and so helpful, and um, and the questions that came out from everybody, it just it's just wonderful. I thank you all. Thank, thank you, you, Rabbi Jacobson, and um, thank you, Rabbi Klar. Thank you, Rabbi Leaf. Thank you, Chabad of Montclair. Thank you, Chabad of Essex County. Thank you, all the Chabads and everybody gracing us here from New Jersey and from all the communities wherever you are. Sending you my love and light and blessings. Chazak, chazak, v'nis chazek. And may we together hold hands always, be connected with our souls and with our deepest infinite light and with God to be able to transform all of our own darkness and the darkness around us into a catalyst and springboard for light and reveal that infinite light of Mashiach that exists in each and every one of us until the whole world will be transformed by that collective light speedily in our days. 
Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you. Thank you so much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.